The idea of job security is outdated as a landline. If you haven't been in a search for a while, it's probable you will at some point, by choice or not. Most executives admit to staying way too long or sense what's coming and justify staying anyway. Here, there's another reason. The faulty belief that navigating to what's next will inevitably be worse and has to suck. Screw that. Lauren Greif has spent a lifetime in corporate and executive search, calling bullshit on stale career advice that most still use. This is Career Blast in a Half, the career podcast for executives ready to cut past outdated career advice to fuel your outcomes now. So let's go. This is episode 14 of Career Blast in a Half, and we brought some big guns in today. We brought in an anxiety coach. I've never even heard of an anxiety coach, although I should have discovered one many, many, many years ago when my anxiety flared up. I don't know about you, but anxiety has definitely gotten the best of me. I don't think anybody is immune to anxiety, especially when it comes to their career. Joe Vandekar is not only an anxiety coach, but he is the author of a new book that is ready to launch called Anxiously Fearless, Seven Ways to Retrain Your Inner Voice to Conquer Challenges. And I am thrilled to desk to have you here, thrilled to death, not thrilled to desk, although we're both sitting at a desk, to have you here today, Joe. And thank you for joining and helping us to uncover some of that noise specifically coming from that inner voice. Yes. Thank you, Lauren, so much. I'm very excited to be here today. And since we started chatting, gosh, a couple of months ago, I've gleaned so much insight from what you do for your clients and the people listening. So I'm happy to be here and hope that we can work through some of that noise that mostly emanates from the inside, I found. <laughs> so isn't that the truth? I think it's hilarious that you, of all people, a veteran of Apple and being in the Navy and putting yourself in these extremely high anxiety situations, continue to raise your hand and opt in for more. I mean, even writing a book, even all of these things, like why, if you know that you struggle with anxiety, why do you continuously go back to the anxiety well? Gosh, as you say that, I just like want to shrink down below the desk and maybe be like, oh, don't look at me. But that's a great question. And I put some thought into it previously where it's like, I felt this way, that internal tension, that internal chatter, whether I'm doing bullshit or not, frankly, it's exhausting, right? Like there's always a narrative going through. There's always of you know, ways that I'm looking at the world. And so at some point, I just realized better to face it down and go for it than it is to just sit there and not really get anything done. But having said that, it is exhausting, right? And that's actually what led me to start exploring. Do I have this anxiety? Why do I have this inner voice? And that has been the most interesting part. Like I can look at the cool stuff I've done objectively, but it's not enough to quiet that internal critic. Yeah. Or to stop you, right? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't yeah. diminish or dim your flame in any way. It seems to have its unique fuel. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know 
exactly what I was blessed with on that. I think it's the analytical mind. Like I can see that there wasn't, you know, playing it safe didn't pay off. Yeah, that's what I was telling myself, right? Don't put yourself out there. Don't be crazy. And then all of a sudden, I'm putting myself out there. And I was like, let's start talking about this and see what people think. And it's been a journey on that one. (laughs) So, so much of what you do is help your clients and help other folks rewire their brain, right? That complicated mechanism, that instrument that lives between our ears that I often refer to as the bullshit manufacturing plant is also what you have not only done for clients, but what you're talking about specifically in your book. And what I would love for you to help us understand first and foremost is, is it possible? Like, can you really retrain your brain? And like, not go into meditation or anything like that. I'm talking about for people, that stuff is like on the side, like, yeah, that's a benefit. But what I'm talking about here is the inner voice to conquer the day-to-day challenges in the moment when you're not like, oh, you know, got to put on my whatever, your mindfulness app. Yeah. And there's a couple of things you said there that, that sparked something. So the bullshit factory, right? That is a perspective that a lot of us that inner voice. It's like, gosh, this thing is only beating me down. And so a lot of people do try to escape it, whether it's through, you know, obsessing about something or distract alcohol, drugs, like name it, right? There's so many ways that we try to escape this. And it's a a perspective on that. But the question you asked me is a really the first one I get from a lot of people is they're like, our brain is our brain. There's it's just there's nothing I can do with it. Right. And we've seen through research and studies, and some of them are, you know, macabre, we know through different like injuries, the brain starts to react differently. And we know through training and therapies that the brain starts to react differently. And that is called neuroplasticity. And so we know that it's possible for the brain to rewire itself with new inputs, right? With And whether those are training inputs or those are like purposeful intentions, we see that develop over time. And so the more that we train ourselves to like fix that or fix is kind of a negative word, the more that we train ourselves to change that, we can actually see those results come through our behavior and thoughts. Heads up, guys. Good news. Like This is doable. This is not insurmountable. It is not something that you know is someday when if. It sounds, based off of what you're saying, is this is achievable. It's not going to happen automatic, right? It's not going to be like, oh, you know, just flip a switch. No, but it's been happening all your life. So your brain is constantly taking in inputs, right? It's a predictive machine that is really only there for your survival. And so it's a threat detection machine. It's a predictive machine. It really takes in everything. So it's been wiring itself your entire life. And what we're learning though is that through intentional activities, and this is where people bring up meditation, and this is where people bring up, you know, journaling and learning things. But even if you learn a language, it's a great example of repetition and learning, you know, intricacies really wire those neural pathways and make them a lot stronger. And so that's what I'm talking about here is like, you can retrain your automatic thoughts. It doesn't mean they're going to go away, but it's your brain will start to change how it views the world and how basically you communicate with yourself. Finally, right? We can do this finally. Because I know, especially with a lot of my clients, that voice, it gets loud. So 
I would love to steer this into some solutions because now we know what the problem is, right? We know what the problem is and we also know the consequences of it, right? It's holding you back. It's limiting all these opportunities. It's just getting into that defeatist mindset. So where do we start with the retraining? Where do we start with building the muscle? Yeah. So for me, it really started with understanding that there, it was worth trying a different way, right? I had previously considered myself like motivated by my anxiety, right? I think I did expert work or I really like tried to, you know, contort myself to quiet this voice. And when that didn't work, I had to step back, you know, through about a burnout and I left the corporate world and took this journey of reflection. And what I found is very first thing to do is build that self-awareness. And so this is the, you know, a lot of people think they are self-aware, but you're really like, we have a problem with objectively looking at our behavior that are motivations. And so taking the time and starting to build that practice and self-awareness can start with just basically asking yourself a question. What are my thoughts? What is the tone of this inner voice? Is it exhausting? Is it uplifting? You know, when I think about something this way, does it actually serve me? And those questions just get you curious. And so that's where I start this entire process with self-awareness. Okay. I have a bone to pick with you, which is everybody thinks that they're so self-aware because nobody's going to stand up and say, I'm not self-aware. And so- Who knows me better than myself, right? Who knows me better than myself? I've been in therapy for years or you know, people tell me I'm self-aware. Honestly, like, is it unfair for us to evaluate our own self-awareness, like evaluating our own level of humility? So in a way, I will say there's an interesting study by Dr. Tasha Yurek that I found hilarious. I think that it was like over 5,000 people were studied and about 95% of them said that they had strong self-awareness, which meant that they could objectively see their behavior, their motivations. And she was quite clever and her team did this Kind of a, you assess yourself, but then people close to you assessed you. And what they found after crunching the data was like only 15% of the people actually measured high in the objective like metrics that they had developed. So at best, and I think she put it in the best way, like 80% of people are lying to themselves about lying to themselves, right? And so with that level of blindness, like it really is not an automatic thing. And I think that's what I try to argue with people is like self-awareness is not automatic. It's not a human it's not naturally built into our system because it it doesn't all, you know, in the olden days, you didn't really need to be aware of yourself to survive. But I think ever more as we get disconnected from some of our more natural predilections, it really does help to know what our motivations are and what's driving our behavior because these automatic thoughts can run us ragged. So this is your first step, right? So in this seven-step process or seven ways, you got to start with some baseline self-awareness. And then where do we go from there? Where's the next kind of, okay, you know, here I am on the ladder. What comes next? Well, and I will say part of the self-awareness is there's twofold. So there's the part that I think a lot of us are familiar with, which is, you know, we meditate, we journal, we become more familiar with our thoughts and feelings. And that's very important. One of the things that I bring to my clients and in the book is that there is a a biological self-awareness that we need. Our brains operate in unique but predictable ways, I think. And so understanding some of the basic neuroscience, I had studied this in undergrad and I kept up with it. And I've been able to see some connections 
that just understanding that your brain is going to act in predictive and automatic ways helps you build that self-awareness. So knowing that there's a trigger, a behavior, and a reward, and that is going to reinforce itself, right? So once you build that self-awareness, really the next six areas I talk about are just different areas of thought that I think our inner voices can be retrained on. And the first one I talk about is resilience. You know, we're kind of spoon fed these perseverance narratives where people go from rag to riches and everything's great. <laughs> like it must have been easy, right? They just followed a formula and they're done. And we end up usually just sipping away at the actual humanity of it and how hard it can be for them. And when we do that, I think it poisons the narratives and we end up beating ourselves up. And this feeds that negative loop of like, well, if they were able to do it so easily, why is it so hard for me? Right. We see the CEO that rose from the mailroom up to the, the top office, and we don't see the 25 years of struggle between the two, right? And I think that does a disservice to us. So whether it's resilience or perseverance, let's just partner those together, or like Andrea Duckworth, Angela Duckworth, of course, grit. Like, what do you want to say? What is the inner voice that needs to come in while you're in the struggle. So here you are, either you're trudging or it feels like, you know, you're walking through molasses, you're trying to get from A to B or A to Z. And so how do you change that conversation while things might be looking bleak and you're tired? Yeah, it's great that you bring that up because it flows into the next pretty seamlessly is the self-talk. Like, how are you talking to yourself in this moment? A lot of times we're very accusatory or we internalize something instead of looking at the present moment and seeing the progress we've made. We, instead of looking at that, we look at how much progress we haven't made. And that's what I'm talking about with the perseverance and stuff. When you compare yourself to an unrealistic myth of resilience and perseverance, I think we can start talking just super negative to ourselves. And so uh, judging yourself talk and taking note of that is really the next step. Yeah. And building that. So I guess the question is, it sounds really dorky, right? Why does self-talk work? Because like I could go, it's okay, Lauren, you know, really, you're, you're okay. It's going to be fine. Don't sweat it. Why does that work? Yeah. There's a couple parts of self-talk that I talk about. One of them is, yeah, you can intentionally tell yourself things like it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. The great thing about our brains is they are bullshit detectors. So if you're just saying that off the cuff, like you may release like a teensy bit of dopamine and you may feel good for about 30 seconds. But like if it's not really based in conviction, it's just going to, you're going to rebound right to the automatic thoughts. Right. And the other side I talk about is are these automatic thoughts? What is feeding your self talk? And so this is the part of the book where I talk about these scripts. You can almost think of it like a computer program. I don't like the imperfect comparison, but like growing up, we learned like if you do A, then B should happen, right? And we have a lot of these if-then statements and we've adopted them wholesale and we've never really challenged. And so, you know, if I work hard, I should be successful. And that leaves out the whole middle part of like what it can take to be successful, you know? And when we talk to ourselves negatively, it's really important to understand where those automatic thoughts come from. So you can't just make it up, right? You got to kind of rewire that part. And then we So time to loop back to self-awareness, right? Yeah. Because if you're in that place where you're feeding yourself a lot of jargon or rhetoric, then it's not 
necessarily that self-aware. You're just placating rather than going deeper. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you don't take the time to tease those apart to understand what's causing those automatic thoughts, they'll just break right through your paper thin ass, you know, affirmations. And I'm somebody who believes in affirmations and I use them daily, but they're tied to a lot of things I've discovered in the self-awareness journey. So you're completely right. Self-awareness isn't step one and then you move on. It's the foundation that you build this anxiously fearless mindset on. Excellent. Okay. The next one is something that I know is near and dear to a lot of us, which is burnout. Explain how burnout is a tie-in to become anxiously fearless because whether it is in the job search, whether it's in the day-to-day dream job or the ideal you know, role that you asked for, whether it's the burnout of juggling between parenthood and your work life, or whether it's just burnout because you're just spinning. How does burnout relate to being anxiously fearless? Yeah, I love the way that you showed all the examples or just said all the examples of where you can experience burnout, right? It's not, I think a lot of us in this day and age, we think, oh, I'm just exhausted. My job burned me out. Or, oh man, having three kids is crazy. I debated including this in the book, actually. So burnout was in my job was what led me to this journey. And when I was going through and writing this book, I realized that this is almost the warning system that we have, right? Our bodies will naturally, and our minds will naturally, when depleted, just kind of shut down. And to me, that is the ultimate burnout. And so what I talk about here is the way that we relate to ourselves And if we keep pushing against the grain, like if we're not aligning our life and our efforts with our values and, you know, retraining our inner voices to be our allies, we will burn out. Mm -hmm. I see. So all of the steps that led up to this self-awareness, resilience, self-talk, you think you're going to shortcut those, you know, you're probably going to land in the, the village of burnout. And also, I have a friend that refers to these things as a check engine light, right? That thing is going to go off, right? And obviously health concerns, all kinds of other things that show up there. So how do you, as you are facing burnout, what is the antidote with respect to that so that it doesn't get any worse? Yeah, one of those things, I don't know where we started believing that if we just keep suppressing ourselves and like contorting, I use that word a lot, contorting, because that's what it felt like for me, was I was very successful at my job. There were clear and indicative warning signs that I was, you know, not in a good fit. I was pushing against my own values to live this some ideal lifestyle. And so burnout is a, like you said, it is the check engine light, but we just keep driving through it. And if we keep doing that, like, I don't know why we believe that we're going to avoid it. And so when I talk about burnout, I really do try to drive home the point that like it is avoidable, right? Like a lot of people, it's not like a self-responsibility thing because I think we live in a culture where it just extracts from us, but we are our best defense against it. And that's what I try to build people towards is this mental fitness routine that you can identify the warning signs and then you can start making the corrective actions so that you don't experience that because it is devastating. So is burnout and the next one, are they like related 
cousins to each other because burnout and stress are look like they're completely and often inextricably linked. So sometimes. And the great thing that when I was researching stress, and I originally wrote the chapter in a completely different, I had a very big belief on it and I had rewritten it. There are really good stressors and there are really bad stressors, but stress for too long of a period at any time can burn you up. And so in the book, I talk about learning how to differentiate between the two and how to use the one, the good stress, which means you're trying to accomplish something and it's hard and you feel that, but it's getting you closer to your goal. So how can you embrace that and how can you use that to get to where you want to go? And then there's the bad stress, toxic work environments, you know, unrealistic expectations and this kind of stuff that just depletes you and does not get you closer to your goal. So how do you reduce that? And that's what I use because for me, my evolution with stress was, oh, this is hard. I'm not good enough, right? Yeah. When I was going through OCS, Office of Candidate School, 13 weeks of a drill instructor, you know, kicking you around and just tearing you down. I remember being completely like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail. What the hell was I thinking? I shouldn't even be here. And my best friend in the Navy at the time who I met in OCS, like in the eighth week was like, Joe, this is supposed to be hard. Like you're doing just fine. And I was like, oh, okay. So stress doesn't mean I'm full. Stress is just apparent. Okay. Well, then I should avoid stress because it's unpleasant. Right. So then, you know, when I started working for Apple and things got stressful, I would not take on extra duties or I would not seek out different assignments because I was like, well, why would I want to add stress to my life? And what I ended up doing there was missing out on opportunities to learn and grow. And what I also learned in the corporate world is that there's a lot of negative stress and I didn't do enough to reduce that. And so basically my evolution on stress was all wrong. And I had come to realize when you're working towards a goal and it's stressful, that can be an indicator that you're making progress. All right. So I want to make this gross analogy because that's kind of my jam. So I am thinking <laughs> that the way that you've just described stress is kind of like the way that people talk about good fats and bad fats, right? And so it's like, oh, you know, avocados, those are the good fats. You know, if you're going to eat a lot of processed, you know, palm oil and all that junk, that's the bad fat. So stress is is not in and of itself bad. It can be in the wrong situations or even how it is that you digest it. But there's also something very exciting about overcoming some kind of stress when there's a constraint. And even with your fat metaphor, like if you eat a ton of avocados, it's just as bad for you as eating a ton of a bad fat, right? Like so you really need to get a handle on stress, learn how to identify it. In doing that, you can leverage it to get closer to your goal. And the goal here is to live a fulfilled life, right? Not just to conform to some idea or run yourself ragged, but really to align your values and your purpose with what you're actually doing. And stress is just a part of that. Stress is a part of that. Moving on to the next one is, I mean, we're talking self-awareness, resilience, self-talk, burnout, stress scarcity, scarcity mindset, right? This really causes so much anxiety. I used to get really wrapped up in this one. Help us understand how we need to retrain around scarcity mindset because it's not just so easy to go, okay, well, I have an abundance mindset. How do, right? Like where did somebody come up with that like a light switch? 
Yeah, I mean, the goal is like, right, using gratitude and doing that, you can formulate an abundance mindset. But for me, understanding, and I think, you know, when there's an anthology written on the human race, whenever we reach maximum knowledge, I think scarcity will be identified as the number one factor in our brain. And I think it comes from looking for food or however we evolved. I think it just affects every part of our life. And bringing that into a current day and what I do in the book is talking about there's true scarcity in the world. If you don't have your basic needs met, then you are preoccupied with meeting those basic needs, right? So food, shelter, water, love, companionship. For many of us, though, who do have our basic needs met, we're still living in this scarce life. And it can look like, and there's been some great studies done, and I catalog them in the book. But you know, when you overcommit and overschedule yourself, that's no different than somebody who's writing checks without enough money in their bank account, right? Yeah, it really is. So the way that you're like, if you don't think you have enough time, then you're going to live like you don't have enough time. And you're going to do a disservice to yourself. And people talk about exhaustion and people talk about all these self-help techniques. But if you're not living to where you actually schedule them in because you are triple scheduling work and you know neglecting your family and all this stuff, that's a scarcity mindset. It's a time scarcity. Money is the same way. If you just believe there's never enough money in the world, then that's going to control your life. And that's what I really get into is how scarcity will drive your behavior if you don't identify it. And frankly, you have to neutralize it. Like it's just wired into our DNA. Okay. So I want to take a two second pause here and troubleshoot this because there is always that fear that lives in the hiring process. Number one, there aren't enough opportunities. Number two, you know, people are pulling back, the budgets are being cut, whatever that narrative is. And believe me, LinkedIn, news, all that does a great job to really support that scarcity. So even hiring managers are basically, whoa, we only have, you know, one spot or, you know, we have so many candidates, which makes you feel like you are not going to get it because you are perhaps coming in with that scarcity mindset. So what is the process to be able to quell that anxiety when that scarcity is literally just running rampant? Yeah, I can speak from personal experience on this and recent personal experience when applying for jobs and looking for those opportunities, right? We can start with the best of intentions. And I have experienced to where all of a sudden I'm applying for 50 jobs, maybe 10 of them I actually want, but I just believe that there's not enough out there, right? And so I start just grappling, just like an ape trying to grab all the apples that are in front of me, right? And what that does is that, you know, people may think, well, great, you're casting a wide net, but it's not focused energy. And so your chances of getting what you actually need, in my opinion, are quite low. And so what I ended up doing was taking a step back and you have to step into the uncertainty of the fear. And this is where some of the work that we've done already, right? So I know what triggers me. Like I know the idea of not having financial stability is a huge trigger. So that goes into my journaling practice. I take it to my self-awareness. I think about, you know, okay, I expect to be at this place where I'm making a million dollars a year, but I'm still building towards that. So that goes into my perseverance narrative, right? So this all kind of builds onto each other. And so when you're confronting scarcity, it's really important to just take a step back and even get a trusted friend involved and really evaluate what is driving your behavior. So if you are acting in desperation, 
to me, that's the number one red flag that you have a scarcity mindset. So identify what that scarcity is. Identify, you know, because all that's going to do is distract you until you actually know what that is. You're just going to keep acting automatically. Once you have that identified, step back and develop a strategy. Take the time to say like, what do I really want? And what would I need to do to get there, right? It's not applying for every job that's posted on LinkedIn. Maybe it's actually picking up the phone and calling somebody. Maybe it's hiring, you know, somebody like Lauren who can walk me through this process. Maybe it's somebody like an anxiety coach because I keep acting in the same way, even though I think I know better, right? And so that kind of stuff really does feed upon itself. But the scarcity mindset is absolutely the hardest thing to confront. Yeah, it's hard to wrangle. I'm curious, can you just give us a couple of kind of catchphrases that would indicate to somebody who is listening, one of our dear listeners, hey, if you identify with this, oops, you could be right now in that loop of scarcity mindset. What does it sound like? The moment, the moment you say, I don't have enough X, Y, or Z, or there is not enough X, Y, or Z, your brain is operating from a scarcity mindset without fail. Oh, good. Without I'm fail. so glad that I asked that because that sounds like the first line of fire that you need to check yourself on. You go into that place where your assumption is, I don't have enough time to do this, right? I don't have enough money to pay for this. I don't have enough resources to be able to find this. I don't have enough skills, whatever that X fill in the blank is prefaced by I don't or there isn't. So thank you. And what that does to your brain, your listeners understand that what that does to your brain is you become a tunnel and you're, all your attention and energy and resources will go to solving that perceived scarcity. So as soon as you say, I'm not smart enough. You're not. Your brain's going to look for a way to get out of it. And it's not to logically think through your skill set. It's going to look at everything you don't, right? And it's just not, it's, so it'll set you back. Your own, and, your own like faulty bias. Oh, that's ridiculous. Okay. The last one, identity. Identity. Yes. Uh, help us understand that because there's a lot of folks that I know, myself included, for a very long time, had a lot of anxiety when my identity was stripped. So how does this all tie in to the retraining of that inner voice with your identity? So this one is a big, another one where awareness goes a long way. And then understanding how to actually build your identity, right? So like self-awareness, I think most of us believe that this is automatic, right? Who knows me better than myself? I'm with me 24-7. So I know my identity. Yet when the example I use in the book, and this is what happened to me, is I was consumed by the Navy when I was in the Navy. And when I left the Navy, like I knew it was the right decision because something was off. I couldn't really label it. I had a huge identity crisis. Okay. I worked through that one. I get into Apple. I'm consumed by Apple and I just throw myself into it. I leave Apple because I just couldn't, I was burnt out, huge identity crisis. And that got me thinking, I was like, what is going on? If for somebody who knows themselves so well, why would I have these issues? And what I realized is our identities are formed much like our automatic thoughts. It's where we're spending our time. It's what you know we're allowing to take over and take our energy that we will naturally shift our identity into that. So we may say, 
I am a family man, right? Or my family is important. And I identify as that. But then I am skipping dinners. I am, you know, not going on family vacations. Or when I am on family vacations, I'm not very present. And that's shifting our identity. So it's not stripping it away. It's literally shifting it from the value that you stated to something that's not serving you. And that's what I talk about is, you know, identities are complex. And we see ourselves in multiple ways at different times and in different scenarios, but where we spend most of our time and energy, it kind of reminds me of a, the old proverb in the Bible. It's like, you know, where your energy is there, your, your heart is. And so we spend time doing things that don't fulfill our identity and that will feed in, then that dissonance feeds into our inner voices. And it can be super negative when you're not living your fulfilled life. That misalignment, I see that especially with a lot of our clients that are like, wait a second, like this company is like, I am so, I don't even know how I landed here. Well, oftentimes I know, but aside from that, sometimes they don't know that part of their anxiety is to some degree, they've sold out on themselves and now they are in somebody else's identity, whether it be the company or the mission that is completely going against the grain of who they are. And that that is a wonderful kind of uncovering that you're talking about in this book. So by the way, we are going to put Joe's book in the show notes. It's called Anxiously Fearless. And we're going to wrap this up with three signature questions because we like to get to know you outside of this anxiously fearless topic, although it's very juicy. And the first question is, as we are relating this to our careers, our inner voice, sabotaging ourselves, what, aside from your book, because that's, of course, going to be the number one, but what other books should people be reading because that has been your recommendation? Yeah. One of the, the books that I've really enjoyed recently is by... Eric Cross, I think is his name. I think that's correct. It's called Chatter. And it basically, he breaks down with the inner voice. He goes a lot into what feeds it, like how it can kind of build on itself. And it was a great resource to start really answering these questions. Oh, I like that. Who's living in? It's a good time. Who's living in my head? Yeah. Ooh, Chatter. Okay. I love that. And so in the world of gentle reminders, I have a hundred of them on my desk. What is the post-it that you would suggest that people capture to keep them self-aware or away from scarcity mindset related to their inner voice? Yeah, it's funny you say that. The post-it that has lived on my desk for a year, it's so long that it's not even sticky anymore. It just says, what can I accomplish today? And what can I worry about today? And what that does is brings me right to the present. And it just, yeah. It stops the rumination and the worrying. So I forget about the past, forget about the future, and just think, what can I do today? What can I accomplish today? And what can I worry about today? Yeah. And worry on that one means just what can I give my attention to? Not what can I like spin out on, but more like, what can I accomplish today? What can I give my attention to today? Got it. Okay. And then that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> Perfect. Last question. Your walk-up song, Joe Endicar. Oh, that's funny. It's been Survivor by Destiny's Child for a while. I, I mean, how long has that been? It's 
say, I'm like, how long has that been at 20 years at this point? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so, so good. I'm so glad I asked because that was really, really winning. Joe Vandekar, I'm going to make sure that people go and find you on LinkedIn. And also don't forget to get Joe's book. Pre-orders are available now and the paperback and other sellers will be available on June 23rd. So right around the corner. And I am excited to get my copy and also do some rewiring of my own. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been great. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening today. Please, 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 if you liked what you heard, do us a solid and put a review together because that keeps us motivated and also helps us rewire our own brains because, trust me, there are a lot of podcasts out there, so I don't want to get into my own scarcity mindset. Thank you for everything, Joe. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for joining today. We appreciate your listening ears. Big time. We ask this. Use these tools, not tomorrow, right now, and share them by spreading the love. Leaving us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss the next career blast in a half. Most of all, thank you for you.